Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. My name is Chad Almy, and I'm on the admin team here, although uh, recently I've been given, I think, a more notable title, which is one of the first husbands of the Marietta School Board, so... <laughs> Um, congratulations to Jason and Jaylene and A.B. and Jeff. That is very exciting stuff. I told Mitch, who's Jaylene's husband, that we need to start a segment in the Marietta Journal of Who Wore It Better, the first husbands of Marietta. So. Um, but yeah, and, and I have, uh, I'm on my second shirt of the day, so those friends who so lovingly last time I preached pointed out the sweat patterns on my shirt, uh, I've taken measures to try to, try to help that. So... Um, okay, so we are continuing now on in Ephesians. David uh, took us through Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 last week, which was Paul's commands to husbands and wives. And uh, just quickly, I want to summarize by reading a verse actually from Philippians that David read last week that I think it does a good job of the heart of that teaching. And that's Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Right? So in marriage, we should consider our spouse better than ourselves. We should think about their interests. We should um, die to self to live for Christ and serve them. And we're really going to see an extension of that message today. And we're going to look at two different types of relationships. We're going to look at parents and children and then we're going to look at slaves and masters. But when we look at slaves and masters, we're actually going to talk about employees and employers, bosses, owners of companies. And, and we'll talk a little bit about why we think that's a legitimate theological position uh, in a second. But today really is an extension of, of last week. Uh, Luther called these three categories of relationships the household, household code. And that's because in first century Ephesus, these were the relationships that you had in your household. Why did Paul choose household relationships uh, in order to talk about so prominently in his, his letter to the Ephesians? I think it's because these relationships have two things in common. One, they're relationships of primacy. So they're some of, if not the most important relationships of our lives. They have incredible influence in our lives. And, and for most of us, for a lot of us, these are the relationships that we'll spend the most time with these people uh, throughout our lives. Also, these are relationships of permanence. So these aren't relationships that when things start to go south or uh, get a little difficult, you can just jet on them. You can't ghost the people in these relationships easily. You have to go through conflict. You have to go through the hard things and come out the other side. Um, I think God has a special place for these relationships in our life because we're forced to see the impact of our sin and self-focus, right? When we hurt these people, we see it and, and we live with it. Uh, they're also probably most honest with us about our sin and areas of pride and vanity, et cetera. And, and that leaves us with two choices, right? We can, when we have that conflict and confront those things, we can either say it's that person's fault, they're the problem, and uh, be embittered and, and, and angry, or we can die to self and we can live for Christ. Uh, the first one leads to even more vanity and, and a feeling of, of victimhood that can be destructive. The second leads to, to true life. All right, let's, and, and we're going to look at specific ways that whole 
die to self and live for Christ. We're going to look at specific ways we can do that in four categories today. Again, it's, it's children, it's parents, it's employees, and it's, it's bosses. All right, let's look at the, the text in Ephesians 6. So 1 through 4, children and parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So the first verse, uh, 6.1, is pretty straightforward. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. I think we can understand it. Two things to point out. One, there's no expiration on that. If you're an adult child of still living parents, you still have a duty to obey. And then second, there is a limitation. There's a qualifier on it. It's in the Lord. So similar to last week when David talked about the authority uh, where a wife has to submit to her husband, the authority of the husband uh, isn't unlimited, and it ends whenever it comes into conflict with God's will, with Scripture. And I think the same would be true here of our duty to obey our parents. It has that limitation of if it ever comes into conflict with the will of the Lord or Scripture. Now, the next two verses are a little more difficult, and uh, I had lunch with David um, a couple weeks ago, and and in large part, I wanted to pick his brain on these verses, because honestly, if if this wasn't in the Bible, and someone just came up to me on the street and said, hey, if you follow this one commandment, then you will have this specific blessing. Your life will go well, and you will have a long life. I would say, hmm, that, that, I don't know if that sounds like great theology. That sounds kind of prosperity gospel-ish. Um, I'm not sure uh, what that means. But it is scripture. It's in the Bible. So we need to deal with it. And I think that it, it probably two ways that, that we can deal with it the best. One is a very pragmatic way, which is just our parents have lived a lot longer than us. They've been through things that we haven't. They've seen consequences that they'd like to save us from. They love us. They want what's best for us, and so obeying them, honoring them, often will lead to blessings and good results in a long life. I think the second point really ties into all of the relationships that we've talked about last week and this week, and that's the act of submitting, the act of obedience, the act of seeing others as better for yourself. That is the act that allows you to start to die to self and live to Christ. And that, again, is where we really start to experience true life. All right, we're going to spend the most time uh, here on this parents and children section on this next verse, verse 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. The Greek word in the original text for exasperate is Paragizo, and that's a combination of para, which is Greek for to come alongside, and ergizo, which is derived from the Greek word for anger. So paragizo means to anger alongside, to enrage, to rouse, to wrath, to exasperate. And then David told us last week that there's companion passages in Colossians where Paul writes about the exact same relationships, very similarly. And in relevant part, in Colossians 3.21, he says, Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. So how do we potentially anger, exasperate, embitter, discourage our kids? What do we need to watch out for and not do? Unfortunately, there's probably a lot of ways uh, when we start to reflect. There's some obvious ones, right? Losing our temper, uh, treating them out of anger, sort of unloading the emotional baggage of our day on them. It could be verbal or physical abuse. It could be belittling them. Uh, I think all of those things would most certainly violate what we're called to here in Ephesians 6. But I want to spend time on something that's not as obvious 
uh, that I think is probably more prevalent here in Marietta, certainly in my own life and uh, as a parent, as a father. And that's pressure, and it's a specific type of pressure, but it takes on many forms, probably as many as we have different parents in the room. And that's the pressure that we put on our kids when we substitute the training and instruction of the Lord, God's plan for how to raise our kids with our plan, with our wisdom, with the things that we, the aspirations we have for them, the things we want them to accomplish, what we want their lives to end up looking like. And it's usually out of good intentions, right? It's so that they'll have a good life, so that they'll be happy, they'll have joy, they'll have peace. But a lot of times we think that's something other than God. And it could take on a lot of forms. Long term, we might think that's getting them into the right college so that they can get a good job and they can have stable income, meeting the right spouse and starting a family. It may be more short term if you're in elementary school, parent may be, you know, obsessing over how do I, you know, get my kids with the right play dates so that they always get invited to the birthday parties or don't get made fun of so that they're happy. It might be uh, right now in our schools, we see a, a desire to want to censor what's being taught, what's being discussed, what's being brought up so we can protect our kids. All of those things are good things, right? Each in and of themselves are good things. It's good to be productive and have a job. It's good to, to have a family, to be a godly father and husband. It's good to want to protect your kids from certain influence. And of course, it's good for, for them to have friends. The problem comes when we take those things and we put them in the place of God. We make them idols. We believe those are the things that are going to save our kids. Those are the things that are going to ultimately matter in the end. Those are the things that are going to give them a good life. Whereas, what does God say about it, right? He says, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. I think about myself, right? I think my version of that is probably the success version. I want my kids to have good jobs, so I want them to go to good schools. So we find ourselves shuttling them all over the place, right, to this practice or that tutoring session. It may be for you a voice lesson or a hitting instructor, right? Think about just for a minute, if you're a parent of school-age kids, the amount of time you spend thinking about, worrying about, strategizing, and then actually acting to set your kids up for success. Why do we do it? Again, I think it's because we think those things are what's going to save them. Those things are what's going to give them true life. One version of it that I think is really prominent here in Marietta that I hear all the time, right? It's, okay, we got to get them in the right preschool, and, and by that we mean one that's going to give them confidence and make them feel loved so that then they can move into elementary school feeling good about themselves, but it's got to be the right elementary school, and then we're going to maneuver and make sure they get the exact right teachers, and if they fall behind or there's a gap, we're going to make sure they get tutoring so that then they're on the right track in middle school and high school. And if it doesn't work out, we're going to take them out and put them in another school. We're going to make sure they get an SAT tutor. All of this so that it culminates in what I think we can all agree is, is, is the main goal in life, the pinnacle of achievement, the thing that uh, makes or breaks people, and that's admission to the University of Georgia. <laughs> right? Yeah, there was some Woofing there. I thought we could go dogs. I didn't know about the woofing, right? But if, if we don't do that, then they're in the darkness. It's the wailing and gnashing of teeth at, at Clemson or, God forbid, Auburn, and their lives are over, right? They're digging ditches and begging for scraps in the streets, right? Well, I'm, I'm obviously joking. I'm being silly. But there probably is, are some folks in, in, in the room who that resonates with. And for 
probably all the parents, there's something. It may not be UGA, it might not be a school, but there's something that they want so badly for their kids. And again, it's, it's well-intended. It's because they, th- they think it's going to make their kids happy. It's going to give them true life. But we know as Christians, right, that true life, it comes back to this dying to self and living for Christ. And how do we do that? How do we instill that in our kids? Again, it's in verse 6-4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Instead of putting all that pressure on them and spending so much time uh, helping them pursue these certain things that might exasperate them, we need to go back to the training and instruction of the Lord. So again, if you're a parent of school-age kids and you've been thinking the hours you spend on that now, contrast that with the hours you spend praying with your kids every week, reading scripture, listening to sermons, talking over the dinner table about theology or the aspects of God. This verse is simple. It's straightforward. It's easy to understand, but it is hard to do. It's a struggle. Or maybe for most of us, it's not even a struggle. We don't even think about it. We don't even think about training and instructing our kids in the Lord. One more I want to mention before we move on, you know, that there is, uh, and I think it comes out of a great uh, intention again, this idea that we want to make sure that our kids are only exposed to certain ideas in school and sports and clubs, and we spend a lot of time, a lot of us do in this room, um, doing things like running for school boards or, or talking to principals, teachers, wanting to make sure maybe moving schools that they only hear the right things, they're, they're taught in a godly way, but are we actually spending the time? Are we spending as much time on actually doing that in our homes, on praying with them, on reading scripture as we are worrying about stuff and being animated towards the other influences? We have this opportunity to train and instruct them in the Lord. What if we spent a quarter of the time that we do worrying about that stuff or even a tenth in training and instructing our kids in the Lord? What would it look like? How many missionaries would we have from Stonebridge? How many more tables on Delk or Dwell would we build? What would our city look like? But we often don't. I don't. Uh, we substitute God's wisdom for our own wisdom and judgment. Uh, it's why I get embarrassed or angry when my kids misbehave in public or even worse in terms of what it reveals about my heart when they fail. Uh, it's why I get so proud and happy when they succeed. It's about me and my plan for them, and it's in direct conflict with God's word. And if you think your kids don't see that, they don't feel that pressure, I would invite you to re-examine. Last summer, the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, who for decades have tracked at-risk groups of youth. So they've categorized four groups, and they've been the same four groups for decades, of youth who are at a higher risk for behavioral or other mental health disorders. And those four categories of kids that tend to be at a higher risk are kids who are living below the poverty line, kids who are actively in foster care, kids who are the children of of recent immigrants, and kids who have at least one parent incarcerated. Well, they just added a fifth category last summer, and that category is kids who attend high-achieving high schools. This is the pressure, the exasperation that we put on our kids when we replace God's judgment with our own. But there's good news. There always is with God, and as often as the case, it involves his grace. So God's plan for my three kids, for each of your kids, he has an individual plan that greatly surpasses our plans for our kids. 
And the good news is in Romans, God tells us that in all things, God works for the good of those who believe, even our misguided mistakes and failures as parents. And there's even better news, right? We're not uh, left to just wallow and continue on this path, but he gives us the Holy Spirit, like David talks about last week, that the grace of the Holy Spirit that will allow us to change some of that, to rewire ourselves some, and to, to start trying to do a better job of training and instructing our kids in the Lord. All right, let's talk about slaves and masters now. So uh, picking up verse 5, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So first, some context about what slavery looked like in first century Ephesus. So there are several distinctions that I think are meaningful uh, between it and uh, what slavery looked like in America. So one, it wasn't race-based. It was primarily based on conquest or debt. So as the Roman Empire went around and conquered different people groups, they would often take some of those people and spread them throughout the empire to serve as as servants or slaves in households, usually not for their entire lives, uh, but it helped with labor issues they had. It also helped indoctrinate or, or, or let the newly conquered people understand Roman culture and, and uh, start to, to acclimate to it. Second, maybe more significantly, as a matter of law, slaves were paid wages. Uh, they had to be, they were allowed to save, and they often were able to buy their freedom and, and, and did. And also, there were lots of accounts also of masters freeing their slaves. So it's not to say that exploit or horrors didn't happen in this version of slavery, but it is to say it's distinct from the particularly terrible form of slavery that we had in our country up to 150 years ago uh, that was race-based and that was chattel slavery, chattel meaning we owned people as, as property. So we think because of that difference, it's not ex- what this slavery in Ephesians isn't exactly like wage work here. It, it might be more similar to, to wage work in factories in the early 1900s. Um, but we think it's, it's a fair analogy to take what Paul is saying here about slaves and masters and apply it to employees and employers. So when Paul says slaves, we're going to think and talk about employees. When he says masters, we're going to think and talk about bosses or employers or owners of companies. Okay, so back to the text. In 5 through 8, why would God, through Paul's inspired text, ask us to, ask us to obey our earthly masters? And not just obey begrudgingly, but with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart as if serving the Lord. Again, it goes back to the idea that serving someone else, submitting to them, obeying them, considering them better than ourselves, that is the way of the cross. That is the way to die to self and live to Christ, to push down our desires and needs and hopes and focus on serving others. And why is that important? Well, self-focus and self-love are the enemy of the cross. Self-focus, if we're self-focused, we can't see God's grace and we can't love others with it. But when we submit, again, we find true life regardless of the circumstances. Paul said in Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. 
I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. So to illustrate what not to do and, and what is evidence of a heart that's off in, the regard, in, in regards to, to employment, I'm going to talk about myself. This is something I've struggled with mightily for a few years, and then we're going to look at an example of someone I think is doing this really well. So uh, I'm a labor and employment lawyer. After law school, I spent some time at a firm, and then after a few years, went in-house, which just means you become a lawyer for one employer. Your only client is the company that employs you. In this case, it was Turner Broadcasting for me. Um, it was an awesome job, a uh, fun job, cool job. Uh, and I started as a young lawyer, was there almost 10 years, and worked my way up to uh, being in charge of our labor function. So uh, that's kind of where, you know, the heart of it is in a media company. You can't create original content if you don't have labor contracts, collective bargaining agreements with actors and writers and directors. So I'd fly out to LA and I'd negotiate with these unions. Um, and the last one I did with uh, the Screen Actors Guild, literally sitting right across from me, uh, on the bargaining committee was Shirley MacLaine. Um, and then similarly with employment law, uh, lots of incredible experiences. I was uh, over employment law for several of our entities, uh, Turner Sports, Cartoon Network, Adult Swim. And you know, employment law is all about discrimination, harassment. Sometimes those are big and meaningful lawsuits depending on who's, who's accused. I ran those lawsuits for us, kind of interacted with our highest levels of executives. I would do trainings. One time I found myself in a room about the quarter the size of this one with 25 guys. It was our on-air sports talents for an hour and a half. Chris Weber, Shaq, Charles Barkley, Isaiah Thomas, Ernie Johnson, they all had to sit there and listen to me uh, give labor trainings or employment training. But, I love that job, and why did I love it? There are great people there, but there's great people a lot of places. It was challenging, but find that work uh, in a lot of places. I think I loved it so much because of what it told me about myself. It, was, it felt really good. It was very affirming to see, meet, work with famous people, to be in an industry that everybody knows and gets excited about, uh, to be promoted a lot, right? The, the formula for me and, and feeling good in that job was I'm the center of it. And if I'm being stroked and patted and affirmed, then everything's great. And that was a good formula for a while. You know, in, in Philippians 4, when Paul talks about he's learned the secret to being content in all circumstances, he's not saying that there aren't other formulas, bad formulas even, that don't allow you to be content in some situations. The problem is not all situations. And when you're the center of it, the storm clouds of life are going to come. And eventually it's going to rock you. And that happened to me in the form of AT&T. So they came and bought us. And as they were uh, pursuing finding efficiencies, which if you're in corporate America, you ever heard that, hear that word run, because usually doesn't bode well. And, and I became one of those efficiencies. So I got a package and uh, I ended up being really blessed and lucky to find a job at, at Chick-fil-A. And it's a great job, uh, but it's been a really hard two years. And people are surprised by that because Chick-fil-A is a great company and has great people. And as I've reflected on why it's been so hard, I realized because my formula is off, right? I now have a much smaller job. I took a step back. I'm not in the heart of the action anymore. I support these subsidiaries that were just starting up. Um, and by the way, the heart of the action, right, is selling chicken. It's not making movies or covering NBA games. Uh, I still, I actually do still fly to LA, but now when I do, I get in a car and I drive an hour north uh, to a lemon juicing facility in Valencia and uh, super, uh, train those supervisors. So it's, uh, 
it's been quite a, a fall from, from grace and, and hit to my ego. And I've, I've struggled. I've really struggled with it. Why? It's because I'm not serving wholeheartedly as if serving the Lord and waiting on his reward, right? I want to have a big, cool job in the service of men to reap earthly benefits. It's my pride. It's my vanity. It's my ego. It's killing all of those things. And it's been hard. But there's grace in all situations, including this one. Uh, and, And one of the instruments of that grace has been my boss's boss and watching him and how he works. Uh, his name's Kelly. And uh, about a few months before I started at Chick-fil-A, we named a new general counsel. And it's a woman named Lynette. She's a great woman, really talented lawyer, kind woman, great lady. But Kelly, at the time the general counsel was named, was senior to Lynette. He'd been at Chick-fil-A more than twice as long. He'd been a lawyer a lot longer. Uh, I think most people in the legal department expected that Kelly would be general counsel. I'm sure that it occurred to Kelly that he might or, or, or probably would be general counsel. But he wasn't. How did he react? Well, he didn't react like I would have, which would have been to feel like a victim, to be angry, to be upset, maybe to have left Chick-fil-A. No, Kelly is working the hardest he's ever worked. I watch him. He works like a dog. I'm often doing it with him at nights, on the weekends. And a lot of the time when he's working like that, he's working to prepare Lynette, the person who was chosen over him, so that she shines, so that when she goes to board meetings, which she hadn't done nearly as much as he had, she's successful. She says all the right things. She's prepared in the way she needs to be. There's, you know, family-owned business, so there's family dynamics. Kelly had handled those far more than, than she had. He helps her understand those. He does it without complaint. He doesn't ever say it should have been him, but he serves her as if serving the Lord. He sees his job to make her successful, the person who got the job over him. That's supernatural, right? That only comes by dying to self and living for Christ. And in watching it, I hope that it eventually rubs off on me. I have faith that uh, it will and that God will reward it. But, you know, you think about the impact Kelly has had on me and it has on other people by doing that. It's powerful and we can all do that. All right, quickly, I want to talk about Ephesians uh, verse 9, so 6, 9, and talk to bosses and owners and executives. So... And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Bosses, owners, executives, those of you in the room, you are not more important than your employees. Now, I know a lot of you who go to Stonebridge, and you would say that. You'd say that, be first in line to say that, and you'd mean it, and you'd be earnest with it. But I ask you to consider in your heart Are you living that? Is that really true? Is that really the way you manage? And I'll ask a few questions just for you to ponder. Do you ask your workers to do things that you haven't done in years? Would it be incredibly difficult, even traumatic, for you to do what entry-level folks do just for one day? Do you justify pushing the least desirable task off on your employees and saving the ones that gain recognition for yourself by saying, well, that's the most efficient use of everyone's time and that maximizes the company's resources. And that, that's probably often true, but is it always true? Are there times where you can serve and do the lesser tasks so that they can shine? 
Do you truly think about them more than yourself? Do you consider them better than yourself? If so, how specifically? Have you ever sacrificed salary or profits or bonus that you've rightfully earned that is yours and given it to any of them so that they might breathe a little easier or have a little less financial stress? In a minute, we're going to have Bo come back up and we're going to have our time of response. And I want us to think about these categories again as we go into it. So thinking about if you're a child, and we're all adults here, so it's child, children of, of adult children, mostly of adult parents. Is there anything that's tugging on your heart, a way you haven't obeyed your parents, maybe a way you need to reach out and reconcile? Parents, we spend a lot of time talking about it. Is there something that you're putting your trust in, your hope in, something that you think is going to save your kids that isn't God, that isn't the training and instruction of the Lord? Do you need to go back and reevaluate your priorities, reevaluate how you spend your time? Employees, are you like me? Are you struggling? Is it a constant source of resentment and anger, bitterness? Do you think you're more valuable than the job that you're in? That may be a sign that you're struggling with this too and that your heart's not in the right place with it. And bosses, employers, owners of companies, just think through those questions again. Are you really serving your employees? Are you really considering them better than yourself? All right, let me pray, and then we'll have Bo come back up. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for all the relationships that you give us, but thank you most of all for these relationships, these relationships of primacy and more permanence. Lord, I ask that you help all of us to grow closer to you through these relationships. You help all of us to die to self more and live for you more because of these relationships. And God, as we go into this time of response, give everyone an insight into how they can serve others better, how they can consider others better than themselves and and, in the process, draw closer to you. We love you, Lord. Amen. Ministry teams, you can come up. You're welcome to sit in your own seat and pray and and think about it and see what the Lord brings. But if you want to come up and you want to talk to somebody, pray with somebody, confess, uh, we've got these teams available. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 